The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org.
with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Amen, church. Remain standing this morning with me. In reverence of the reading of the Holy Word of God, this morning we'll be reading the 16th Psalm. Verses 5 through 11. First Baptist Church of Christ, we hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, would you make this book live to me? And would you show me yourself? You show us your glory, your majesty, your endless perfections. Would you show me myself? Would you show us our helpless estate apart from you, our sin and our weakness and our frailty? Would you show me my Savior? Show me his life, his death, his resurrection. all the ways in which you have loved us in and through him. Father, would you make this book live to me? It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I suspect that uh, one of the reasons that in the resurrection our bodies will be strong and powerful is so that we don't grow weary and weak during times of worship. My only regret this morning is that my lungs didn't have more power, that my back grew a little bit tight. I felt my own weakness just in 37 minutes of worship. I felt incredibly weak. It was beautiful and it was glorious, but it made me long for heaven. It made me long for more strength, greater ability and capacity to worship. So I ask you to return to your feet one more time in the reverence of the reading of the Holy Word of God. We continue on with the Apostle Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through verse 21. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative Word of God. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. All God's people said, Amen. In the second part of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, we meet Christian's wife, Christiana. And, and along the way, very early on in, in the book, along the way, she encounters a man with a muckrake. You all know what a muckrake is, of course. It's a rake for raking muck. Rubbish or mud or compost or, or, or dung. So there, there's this man that she encounters and he's there and he's, he, he's raking through the muck and he's stirring about little bits of straw and, and hay and, and, and pebbles. But above the man stands one with a celestial crown, a golden crown of glory above his head. But in the book it says that the man can look no ways but downward. He was completely unaware of the promise that stood just above his head. And the one that stood above him offered an exchange, the muckrake for the crown. But he was completely oblivious. And I wonder how many of us fall into that very same trap. How many of us spend so much of life with our heads down digging in the dirt and, and busy with the things of this world as if they were our precious, as if they were our treasures, as if this was a thing that we had been created to do, to rake through the muck, to move about bits of straw and dirt and stubble and completely lose sight of the great and glorious privileges that are offered us in Christ Jesus. We find the, the weight and the, and the pain and the worries, the suffering of life have us pinned to the ground. And our own sin keeps us with our, with our head hunched over and, and bent down, unable to even consider what it means to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What it even means to say that God has already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. I wonder how many of us spend the majority of our life living like paupers instead of citizens of the kingdom of God. Because we've been convinced that the things of this world, we've been convinced that the things that we can see are all that there are. Paul clearly has this concern. That's why he's praying the way that he's praying. He knows that it's clearly possible for the Christian, yes, somebody that's in Christ, who has heard the gospel, repented of their sin, 
trusted in the gospel and has a home being prepared for them in heaven, even now, that it's possible for them to live a life just like that. That's why he prays like this. So we've got to remember the setting. Paul's in prison. Plenty to have your head down about. Paul's in prison. The saints in Ephesus are surrounded. At the very center of their town is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a temple to Artemis. We already saw what happened when the apostle Paul came and threatened this false god that is no god. So you've got their leader in prison. You've got a people surrounded by darkness. All the reason in the world to keep your head down, raking about in the muck. That's why Paul is concerned that they don't lose heart, that they don't become discouraged. That's why he is so intent upon sweeping them up, carrying them away. Do you find the apostle Paul's language sometimes over the top? Do you wonder sometimes if he's speaking in hyperbole? I assure you he's not. But that's why he's so intent on piling this language and these repetitive phrases one after another. He's saying, get your head up. Get your head up. Don't lose heart. See everything that's yours. You go back to the first prayer. What did he say? After thanking God for these saints, he was thankful. This wasn't a scolding. He wasn't lambasting them. He was thankful because he had heard of their faith and he had heard of their love for all the brethren. And after thanking them, what is he thanking God for them? What does he immediately ask for? That the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Look up. See the hope to which you have been called. See the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. See what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you who believed. He's saying, look up and see everything that's yours. God, give them eyes to see it. That the eyes of their heart, that, 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 that part of man that directs his, his will and his hopes and his passions... His affections. May he see deep down in his soul everything that he has in Christ. Now we know that this drove the Apostle Paul to worship. Has he, has he begin this whole thing? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to praise. He wants to sing. He wants to worship God for all that he's done. And we know that this is the way in which God glorifies himself. It's his children. It's as the world looks to see his children singing praises to him, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God is honored when his children walk around with their heads up. And he's moving through this second prayer. He's moving yet again to a great doxology. God willing, next Sunday morning and next Sunday evening, we're going to consider together this, these final two verses in this third chapter, honor and blessing to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. My hope for us is that by the time we get to next Sunday morning, our hearts will be already swept up with Paul into a state of worship and praise. Otherwise, it's just going to be words. The last thing I want for us next Sunday is for us to come together and study all the ins and outs of this act of worship and completely miss out on the worship ourselves. 
Walk away knowing what this incredible doxology means and having never encountered the living God about whom Paul sings. And so as we look back to everything that Paul has done to prepare us for this doxology, I ask you, do you find your heart climbing? He says in verse 16 that you may be strengthened with power by the Spirit of God in your inner man. He's praying that God would come and he would affect your mind and your will and your emotions. Everything that's been weakened by sin. Everything that pins you to the ground. He says you need to be strengthened. Your thoughts aren't the thoughts of God. You find your mind being twisted and distorted and deformed by sin and Satan and the world. You find your will twisted, directed away from the things that you know in your mind lead to pleasure and lead to joy. But you can't even want to want the right things. You find your emotions running away from you. You find yourself angry, frustrated, mad, scared, fearful, anxious, depressed all the time. So what the Apostle Paul is praying is, before we even get to this doxology, before these people can rightly praise, before they can worship you as they ought, God, you must strengthen them in their inner man. Strengthen them in their soul. So that, verse 17 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell, not for a moment, not in a fleeting fashion, not, not just a stay over for the night, but that he may dwell, he may make his home within your heart. You remember what we saw during Holy Week? It was Palm Sunday. As Jesus, he comes in, the triumphal entry, he comes down the Mount of Olives, and we don't know what happened to the crowd. They just kind of disappeared from the story, at least in Mark's gospel. They just kind of disappeared from the story, and what we find is that Jesus, on his own, it was already evening, the sun is going down. We find that Jesus goes into the temple and he looks around, and then he leaves. We know that the next day he's going to come in and he's going to cleanse this temple because there's things there that don't belong. The place is not honoring to his father and it is not a house of prayer to God. Now, unlike the first century temple, we've already been cleansed. But we need strengthening and fortification. And this only comes when Christ comes to dwell within us. To make his home within us. And what the Apostle Paul knows is, is that we don't have the ability to bear up under this. Have you ever had those experiences in life and you just wanted to pull away and it wasn't because it wasn't pleasing and it wasn't because it wasn't good and it wasn't because you didn't believe that there was, there was something of value in it. It was because it was all just too intense. Have you ever known people that were just intense? They were on fire for something. They were passionate. They were singular in their thoughts and in their hopes. That you just couldn't stand to be in their presence for too long because it was like they were burning a hole in you. They were, they were too intense. The Apostle Paul knows is, is that if Christ is going to come and make his home within your heart like this, if he's going to dwell and make himself at home within you, set down roots within your life, you must be strengthened. Otherwise, you can't bear up under it. It's all too much. It's all too intense. He goes on to talk about the fact that as Christ comes to dwell in us like this, he'll be transforming you from the inside, that we will look like the kind of house in which Christ dwells. As he burns away and, and, and chips off that which does not belong, 
removes everything that doesn't look like him. As he redirects your emotions and your affections, as he, as he refines you to the thing that you ought to be, you'll find yourself, he says here, rooted and grounded in love. That's what we talked about last Sunday morning. You'll find yourself drawing your nourishment and your life. And you'll, you'll find yourself finding your foundation and your, and your grounding upon robust and long-suffering and self-sacrificial love. Not the fleeting love of this world. Not that ethereal, emotional, empty substance that the world calls love. Not the moving target that changes by month and by year called love. But the kind of love that only comes from Christ and the kind of love you can only know if Christ comes to dwell in you. He says you'll be rooted and grounded on this. And so we, we find ourselves kind of climbing these stair steps or, or climbing this, this ladder of, of blessings with God. And it, just about the time that we find ourselves feeling like maybe we're going to slip or maybe we're going to fall or maybe we're a bit too high, we realize, no, we're, we're grounded and rooted in love. That that's the substance. That's the thing that holds us steady. That's the thing that keeps us from getting blown off of our line. That's the thing that take, keeps us from running away because we find it all too intense. It's because our life is rooted and it's grounded in love. I asked you this morning the same thing that I asked you last Sunday morning. You know what this love looks like. If you're in Christ and if Christ is in you, then you know what love demands. And you know what it means to say that the love of Christ compels you. And you know those ways in which you have not truly loved others. I ask you, what have you done in the last seven days to deal with this? The beginning of it has to be praying to God, asking him to strengthen you, asking that Christ would dwell in you like this, asking that he would root you and ground you in love. So to begin with this, praying to God that he would change your heart, that he would move some things around, or did you hold on to your unforgiveness? Are you building your house on something other than this kind of love? Because it's only from that stance, it's only from that place, rooted and grounded in this love, that you can then come to this next rung. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints the immeasurable love of Christ. Be able to wrap your mind around the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And yes, I know that we've covered all this, but the reality is, as I found myself this week wrestling with this last section, this last petition that Paul makes, I find myself having to go right back to the beginning because I've missed something along the way. Remember I asked you, I don't remember if it was last Sunday morning or last Sunday evening, I asked you if you ever built something and realized once you got to the end that you messed up at the start. Anything that's ever come from Ikea, you missed that first page, you're done for. So I find myself trying to wrestle with these higher rungs on the ladder, these deeper things of God, realizing I've got to go back to square one because I've not gotten this right. I've not prayed as I ought in this area. I've not realized what strengthening really looks like. I've not asked God to come. I'm holding on to something of my weakness because I'm afraid of what it's going to cost me. I'm not rooted and grounded in love the way that I should. I'm trying to build my, my life on shifting sand or on something else. I don't apologize for working back through this and, and hitting this last petition with a, with a running start. He says it's only then that you can comprehend this love of Christ with all the saints. This isn't a lone wolf activity. You want to see the scope and scale of the love of Christ? You spend time with the saints. 
You want to know whether your life is rooted and grounded in love? You spend time with the saints because they'll test you. They will stretch you. You will find out what you run to whenever they don't act the way you think they ought to act. Is your life rooted and grounded in love like this? It's a long love and it's a wide love and it's a tall love and it's a deep love. Psalm 139 says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If, you take, if I take wings on the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In short, the psalmist is saying there's nowhere I can go to flee from the presence of God. And anywhere where you find the children of God with the presence of God, you'll find the love of God. The love of God in Christ is a pursuing kind of love. Have you, have you learned to appreciate yet that Old Testament word has said? That love that doesn't let go, that love that is grounded in the promises, in the person, in the purposes of God. It's a pursuing love. There's nowhere I can go in all the earth to flee far enough from the hand and the loving presence of God. That's what he's saying. Can you comprehend that? But what we find, though, is that the Apostle Paul isn't happy. He isn't, he isn't going to be satisfied with us just having a comprehension. Just a knowledge that remains in the mind. And that's what good pastors do. They don't settle. They push hard. They drive their people, even when they don't want to be driven. He's a faithful pastor, and as one who's praying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you realize what we're praying here isn't just the Apostle Paul's desire for you. It's God's desire for you. To not be satisfied, to not remain where you are. We have this tendency, even those of us who know and love Christ, even those of us who intellectually know that there is more of him, that there's a deeper holiness and a deeper happiness to be found in that deeper holiness. Even those of us who believe such a thing in our head, we have this complacency that is constantly seeping in. Surely I've done enough. Surely I've grown enough. Surely I've given enough. Surely I know enough. The Apostle Paul, in love, won't allow them to stay there. Won't allow them just to have this intellectual comprehension of the love of Christ. Won't allow them just to keep this Christ at arm's length, which again, is a tendency of the heart. Keep you over there where it's safe, where you won't monkey around with things I might have grown fond of. So he goes on to pray that they would have a real knowledge, an intimate knowledge, an experiential knowledge. That we may know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. This is what we studied last Sunday night. This doesn't mean that this is a love, in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, this isn't a love that bypasses knowledge, it surpasses knowledge. It goes through the mind to get to the heart. This doesn't mean we get to live our, leave our minds, minds up on a shelf. It means that we come with our mind and, and, and wrestle and study and seek and read and pray that we may have an intellectual comprehension, understanding of this love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, knowing I'll never get to the end of it. I will never fully master this love of Christ. And that should be a joy. This love which surpasses all understanding, it also surpasses all your sin and your weakness and your frailty and your ability to run. He says, I have a desire that you would not just know in your minds, but in your hearts, that you would not be second-handers. 
That you would just have these second and third hand experiences of God. That you would just be a people who know things about God. I thought about the irony. I am, I've come to the conclusion I'm just going to be a perpetual student. I'm probably going to be in seminary the day I die. So I hope that someone will give me some, uh, I don't know, just weekend at Bernie's, roll me across the stage and hand me a diploma. <laughs> but you know, the, 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 the primary degree that, that pastors strive for, short of a, of a doctorate, is a master's of divinity. And I think that's a real unfortunate name. Master divinity. Master God. But there's this other danger that that comes from that is that you can become a a, a man who sits around and you study all the theology and you study all the theory and you study all the doctrines of divinity and you know all the things in your head about who God is. And then you seek to stand before a church and talk about a God that you never knew. You've known people like that. They came up to you and they wanted to talk about somebody and you said, you've never met this person. You went to their Wikipedia page. You remember when the apostles get, get dragged in, right, right at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 4, they get, they, get, they get dragged in, Peter and John, and we read Acts 4.13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and common men. And they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I don't want to be a master of divinity in my mind. I want to know Christ. I want to experience the love of Christ. I want people to see me. And whether I can say the right terms, whether I can, I can spit out the right doctrine, whether I can, I can use whatever the, the trendy arguments of the day are, I want people to look at me and go, that's a man who's been with Christ. He's experienced Christ. He knows the love of Christ like this. And this is a love that only he can teach you. Nobody else can tell you about it. And I realize that as I'm, as I'm up here wrestling on my own to know this love and then whatever, whatever experience I have to come and try to give expression to it to you, I know I, I can't. I can direct your heart that way and I can pray that way and I can, I can hold him up before your eyes, but I know that this is a love that you can only know as he comes to dwell in you. You can only have this love through firsthand experiences. You can never receive this love or know this love Truly comprehend this love until he comes to live in you. That's why Paul over and over and over again says in Christ. He will not allow you to think this is about head knowledge only. About seeing him from a distance. You remember what John says, how he begins his first letter. He says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Paul wants you to be able to speak like this. That which we've seen and we've heard and we've tasted and we've touched. Knowing that more often than not, this kind of knowledge comes in the midst of great suffering. What did Paul say in Philippians 3? He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. Finally, the man with the muckrake realizes the muck isn't the purpose. 
The straw and the stubble isn't the purpose. I count it as rubbish, finally. I count it for what it is in order that I might gain Christ. Beloved, do you know what suffering and loss is? I've told you before. It's nothing other than the loss of things you might otherwise desire, otherwise good things. As they are stripped away, that is suffering. That is loss. And it's through those experiences that you come to see and know Christ like this. That's how you're able to rejoice in the suffering. That's how you're able to count the muck as rubbish. It says that thing is stripped away and you find he's still here. He's still setting up shop in my my heart and it's enough. But again, I say it's possible for the Christian not to have this experience. Otherwise, he wouldn't be praying like this. He's praying for Christians. These are the saints who are in Ephesus. These are those who have come to faith in Christ Jesus. These are his brothers and his sisters. And so it's possible. It's possible for every one of us in this room to find ourselves absent this kind of knowledge. So that's why he's praying. You may come to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. And it would seem as though there's nothing higher to come to. Again, if if we count this as a ladder that we're climbing, it would feel as though we're at the top. I remember we were taking something down off of this this, uh, ceiling. And we we, we brought in the big ladder. And I said, I'm the man here. You know, Haley was in here working and Mia was in here working. And I'm like, I'm the man here. I'm going to climb up that ladder. I'm I'm just going to pull that thing down. I got about six rungs from the top. I said, I think this is high as the ladder goes. Then Mitchell came in like a real man and climbed to the very top top. (laughs) How many of us do this? We get about two rungs up the thing and we go, surely this is as high as the thing goes. But again, Paul won't settle. He's taking us even further. Further up and further in as a unicorn said in the last battle. Yet there's more. That we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Remember, I tried to define love for you last week, and what I said was that love is that which always seeks what is best for the other. And so if this love of Christ truly does seek only that which is best for us, could it lead us to anything other than this? Could it lead us anywhere other than the fullness of God? There's nothing higher. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more glorious. And so true love is the love that always leads you, that tells the truth and is constantly seeking to lead you to that which will make you utterly happy and truly satisfied. So we shouldn't be surprised that this is where he's leading us, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I'll be frank with you. Whatever time I've spent in seminary did not prepare me to fully understand this sentence. It's a a very difficult passage to understand. What does he mean when he says that we're filled with all the fullness of God? What is all the fullness of God? Is that all that God is? Is it all that fills God? Is it as full as God is? I I didn't get to the end of it. I don't know. I, I spent dozens of hours this week trying to understand what exactly does this phrase mean and finally I got to the end of it and recognized at very least what he means is this God doesn't come in half measures God doesn't parcel out to you bits of himself and everything that God has in himself is rightly called God so he's saying here much what Jeremiah 
said, you remember that passage where he says that God delights in doing you good with all his heart and with all his soul. It's the whole of who God is. It's the whole of what God has. It's as full of God as God is. It's I don't come in half measures. I don't come to you in tiny bits. I don't come to you little by little. Now we've got to be careful just as we have all throughout this letter that we don't hear what he's saying here is just mindless and, and, and meaningless hyperbole. Paul is way too careful for that. He does desire that we have some comprehension, but this really is a theme that Paul will hold up a thing that we can't understand and say, understand it. He'll hold up a thing that's surpassing all knowledge and he'll say, know it. He'll hold up a thing that he says is unfathomable and he'll say, fathom it. He, he says in Ephesians 1.19, he talks about the immeasurable greatness of God's power. 2.7, the immeasurable riches of God's kindness. 3.8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. 3.19, the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. It should be no wonder that St. Augustine said that I can see the depths, but I can't reach the bottom. We know there's more there. And we can rightly know what's there based on what we can see. We have some knowledge and understanding of what's at the depth, but we can't get to the bottom. We will never reach the full depths of all that God is and all that he's called us to. It's a healthy reminder. You'll never fully wrap your mind, your mind or your arms around all that God is. This means that there never comes a day when we can put God upon a shelf and say, good, I've got him figured out. Now let me move on to curing cancer or something else. That from now until the dying breath, you will constantly be learning and seeking and knowing, if you give yourself over to it, more of God. And that this knowing and this learning and this growing, it extends off into eternity. So Paul clearly means something by this statement to be filled with all the fullness of God. I can say for certainty what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that we have confined or, or fully held God within ourselves. The infinite can never contain, excuse me, the finite can never fully contain the infinite. You remember after Solomon built his temple and we see as the glory of God comes to dwell there in a very real and magnificent way. What does he say? But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So it cannot be that man ever fully contains God. It cannot be that man ever becomes God. It cannot mean that man ever ceases to be man. So we can take off the shelf the idea that we have somehow fully controlled or contained God within ourselves or some kind of type of a pantheistic view that God is now trapped in everything. And we can do away with any idea that if God comes to dwell in us like this and we have the fullness of God, we somehow ourselves become divine, ourselves become gods. Those two things can't be it. And in any understanding of what it means to be filled with the fullness of God, it's got to hold in our mind this idea that there are parts of God, there are attributes of God, which simply cannot be communicated to humanity. So think about all those things that make God alone God. His infinitude. His eternality, the fact that there was not a time when God was not. His omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence. All the things that rightly can be said that make God, God. Those things aren't here, but there are those attributes of God that are contributed to man. Communicated, rather, to man. Holiness and wisdom and power and goodness and mercy and love and righteousness and justice. 
So at the very least, we have to have these two categories held up in our mind. That there are ways in which we can rightly look to God and say, I desire to be holy as you are holy. When we look to each other and we say, this man is truly godly. We don't say he's godlike. We don't say he himself is God. But we say he reflects truly who God is. In as much a way as man can look like God, this man looks like God. So when he says here that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, there are at least some categories in our mind for what he's saying here. And looking back at everything that we've just read in this prayer, we know the way in which this fullness comes. He's already said that it is as Christ comes, Christ as God, as Christ comes by his spirit, it's as he comes to dwell within us. We've got to remember that this is the way in which this fullness of God is communicated. It's not a substance, it's a person. We're not calling to God from heaven and saying, would you send a lightning bolt of yourself, a lightning bolt of your attributes, a lightning bolt of your nature down within us that we can become a godly people. What we're asking is, God, you come and dwell within us. It's a person, it's not a substance. And so we see, as Paul wrote elsewhere in Colossians 2, verse 9, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. It's in Christ that the fullness of deity dwells. And it is Christ who comes to dwell within us. And so it is in him that we find our filling. It's as he abides in us and we in him that we find our life and, our, and, and whatever it means to be filled with the fullness of God. It only comes in our communion with him. We see something somewhat similar back in the first chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So very clearly, it's our union with Christ. Our union to Christ through faith is the way in which this fullness of God comes to fill us. Again, we haven't mastered what that means yet. I don't know that we ever will fully wrap our minds around it, but we have to have fixed in our heart the idea that it only comes in Christ. We're not looking for some substance. We're not looking for some attribute. We're not looking for some grace. We're not looking for some gift. We're looking for a person. We're asking God to strengthen us so that he can come and dwell in us like this. We need to also remember the context of this prayer. Remember the Apostle Paul praying to Christian people. He is praying for them to come to an experience and to a growth and a sanctification process. Again, he's dealing with people that already have Christ dwelling in them. He's already dealing with people that have been filled with the spirit of God. But now he's talking about something that is, it's a, it's a pattern of growth. It's a pattern of, of strengthening. And so this word here for being filled, this Greek word, it can also be used of making a ship ready for a journey. You can think of outfitting a ship, outfitting a tank, outfitting something that is headed out on a long journey. It's, a, it's an act of preparation for what lies ahead. I think that that is in some way what we're looking at here. As we come to chapter 4, Paul will say this as he talks about Christ giving gifts to the church like the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and preachers and teachers and pastors. He says that the purpose of this is that we might all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You remember that back in chapter 1 when he says that we are chosen before the foundation of the world. The purpose was that we would be holy and blameless. We would be like Christ. He says the reason God has given gifts through Christ to the church is that we might attain to the fullness of Christ, the full measure of Christ, that we would be like Christ. So it seems clear to me that what he's talking about here is this filling of Christ. 
excuse me, this, this filling of the fullness of God, there's a purpose there, is a preparation, and it's a strengthening, and it's a making us like Christ. So there's one passage that I think is helpful. You might want to turn there, 2 Peter 1. Second Peter 1, he says this, beginning of verse 2. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. I think the key words there are all things that pertain to life and godliness. Whenever he talks about this being filled with all the fullness of God, I think what he's saying is as much of God as man can know, as much of God as man can reflect, as much as man can look like God, the true essence of eternal life. What is eternal life? To know God and his son, Jesus Christ. To whatever degree man is able, all that he needs for life and godliness, that that's what God comes to fill him with. In short, that there's absolutely nothing worth having. That there's absolutely nothing necessary to live this life. This life that can rightly be called eternal. There's nothing worth having. There's nothing that we need for life and for godliness that we don't find in God. That we don't find him promising to fill us up with. Not just giving gifts from on far, but coming to live within us. And this, I think, is the most critical thing for us to grasp. Rather than trying to figure out what is the fullness of God, filling out what, figuring out what does it mean to be filled. You knew what it was like to be filled in former times, before you came to Christ. Paul says in Romans 1, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, with evil, with covetousness and malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boasty, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You know what it's like to be filled with all those things. You were controlled by them. They flowed out of you. You found that even as you desire to do what is good, it was these things that compelled your mind and your will and your emotions. So you know what it's like to be filled with the things of the world. You know what it was like even after coming to Christ to feel empty. King David seemed to be crying out for this exact kind of thing. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You know what it's like to have come to Christ and then go through these seasons. It can only be called dry and empty. Your, your worship doesn't come. Your prayer life feels like nothing. You have no desire to read the word. It's not that evil necessarily is flowing from you. There's just nothing there. You feel yourself empty and lifeless and dry. And what Paul is saying here in this mind-blowing prayer is God has promised that God's desire for you as you come to be as you come to be rooted and grounded in love as Christ comes to allow you to know this love that surpasses all knowledge in your inner being that his purpose in all this is that you might be filled 
Not filled with the things of the world as you once were, but that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. As much of God as you can comprehend. As much like God as man can be. His desire is that you might be filled like this. Filled with everything that leads to holiness and happiness. It, it, it drew my mind to John 12. We read that Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I think this is it. That is... As much of God as man can comprehend, as much like God as man can look, everything that's necessary for life and godliness, what God desires to do through the strengthening, through the coming in Christ, through the grounding you in love, is to fill the whole of your life, to fill the whole of your inner man, like a house filled with perfume, with his goodness, and with his power, and with his mercy, and with his love. Jesus said to the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him, he will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, you come to me empty. You come to me thirsty. You come to me dry. You take a drink of me and you find all of a sudden that you yourself are filled with flowing streams. You'll never thirst again. And that's, that's, that's the paradox about those who follow Christ. You come to him and you're satisfied and in your satisfaction, you always want more. You're always coming back for more, but you know the source. You know the place. So I think this is what he says. This is a picture of being filled with the fullness of God. And there's two, there's two I'll just leave you with two outcomes, two, two consequences of what this will look like. I want you to go back to the picture of Solomon in his temple. Remember Solomon looks as the glory of God comes rests upon his temple, and, and Solomon says, well, would God dwell here? That the highest heavens can't contain you. But then we immediate, immediately read that when the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That the house of the Lord was so filled with the glory of God, men couldn't even go in. There was a thickness. There was a fullness. So part of what comes whenever we're filled in our inner man with the fullness of God, whenever he comes to dwell in us like this, is there's no room for anything else. You've all certainly seen this illustration by pastors that want to show you how you get oxygen out of a cup. You've seen this, haven't you? You take a cup, and how do you get oxygen out of a cup? No, more oxygen there. I suppose you could build some type of a vacuum to suck it out. What's the easiest way? You pour water into it. You fill it up and there's no room for oxygen any longer. He says, as I fill you with all the fullness of myself, all the goodness and all the power and all the mercy, all that you need for life and godliness, as I fill you full of myself, there won't be room for those other things. The God of self all of a sudden doesn't have a home anymore. The resentfulness, the unforgiveness, the constantly taking up an offense, whatever, whatever other filth there is that you've been battling all the days of your life that seem to continue to make a home within your heart. Those things won't have room anymore because you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. But in addition to this, as you are filled with all the fullness of God, you'll find that that's the thing that overflows. Going back to this analogy of being thirsty and coming to Christ, John 7, 37, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said of John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he said that if you cut John Bunyan, he bleeds scripture. 
He was so full of scripture, that's what came out of him. And surely some picture of what the Apostle Paul is praying for us is that we would be so full of God, so full of all the fullness of God, all that we need for life and for godliness, that when we're cut, that's what comes out. When we're bumped, that's what comes out. When we're afraid, that's what comes out. When we're anxious, that's what comes out. When we're scared, that's what comes out. When we're frustrated, that's what comes out. They were so full of all the fullness of God that we just always speak and act and think and love and walk like God. And this makes perfect sense as we move on past this indicative onto the imperative. If you start saying, now go do these things. You're incapable of doing these things unless it's God that comes out. Unless you've been filled with all the fullness of God. So surely this is, again, I say the mountaintop of this prayer. The utmost. Because it's only when we are bleeding God when we are cut. It's only when we speak like God and think like God and act like God in all circumstances that we'll ever find any peace and happiness. That you'll ever find any sense of assurance. That you'll ever find real joy and satisfaction. Father, we love you and we thank you. It is... It would be a ridiculous request had you not modeled it for us here. So, Father, with all boldness that we can muster, with all confidence, with assurance that you are always faithful, we're asking you, Father, to answer this prayer in our lives. We're asking you to come and strengthen us by your spirit so that Christ Jesus may come and dwell in our hearts through faith. So that, Father, we may be rooted and grounded in love so that we can comprehend in our minds what is the width, what is the length, what is the height, what is the depth of his love. But that we wouldn't just know it in our minds, Father, that we would have a real, intimate knowledge. That we could know as much as we are able to know of this love which surpasses all knowledge. And that most of all, Father, we may be filled with all your fullness. As much of you as man can rightly be said to know and reflect. As much of your attributes as you can communicate to us. Everything that's necessary for life and godliness. As much as we are able to partake of the divine nature. God, we ask that you would come now by your spirit and fill us up. God, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know that my